welcome back to The Dark Side. I'm your host, Brianna. I'm Dyson. And this is Dark Adaptation. Welcome to episode 27. Thanks. You're welcome. Happy to welcome you here. Right now. And welcome to everyone else. Hello there. Hi. Glad you're here. Hope you love it. How'd you get in? Who? We'll talk about that later, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Stay around till the end and then we'll oh. talk about how you even got here. Yeah, it's on the docket. <laughs> I just wanted to start because we're just going to like essentially dive right in because I have so much to talk about. But I wanted to remind everybody that we have patches available. We have some embroidered patches for your indie podcast collection. It's so beautiful. It's got free shipping. There's no tax. Just go on to our website, darkadaptationpodcast.ca. Flat rate, Canadian. Yeah. It's, it's exciting. It's very exciting. And they're beautiful. Okay, so just like support a little show that you love. You keep coming back, right? Yeah, you keep coming over here uninvited <laughs> into our home. <laughs> is that what that sound is? <laughs> There's, we also have the shop on Instagram. They're available on Facebook. But yeah, your best bet is just checking out the website. Mm-hmm. Going I think they're there. gonna, they're probably gonna lead you to the website anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. So yeah, that was just a nice little reminder for you guys. So uh, let's get right into this. Okay. I'm excited for this week's episode. So am I. We've got a ton of history coming at you. Some interesting, some dark, and some ghouls and paranormal activity and oh, ghost stories. Fuck yeah. So strap in. Yeah, first two for the last two weeks we've had some awesome whodunits and now we've got a uh, spooky places. So I Haunted fucking places. love that. Yeah, that's my jam. Strap in. Cause we're going to West Virginia. Ooh, put on your nut cups and yeehaw! With as much history as West Virginia has, it's pretty obvious why there's no shortage of hauntings. Our first of two stops is Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. Ooh. A defunct amusement park located along Lake Shawnee in West Virginia, specifically Princeton in Mercer County. The park opened in 1926 and operated for 40 years before its closure in 1967. There was a total of six deaths during its operations, but two specifically received public attention, which amplified the lore that the park is haunted. Mm. And I say amplified the lore because there's also a sacred native american burial ground on this lake. oh that's a red flag if i've ever seen one and it's also a spooky trope everyone knows about oh yeah haunted sacred burial ground Ooh. yeah what was that movie again kid gets eaten by a tree Poltergeist. Poltergeist. i kept wanting to say paranormal activity yeah <laughs> but that's the classic one poltergeist you should have yeah. known I want to watch that. I like that movie. I do too. Poltergeist. <laughs> I was going to run into a tangent about how my first time watching Poltergeist, I ate fajitas for the first time. And it just every time someone talks about Poltergeist, they get hungry for fajitas. I'm hungry for a fajita now. Yeah. 
I had oh, jalap- man. I had jalapeno peppers in there. Just a little some jalapeno, <laughs> some spooky spicy jalapeno. Mm-hmm. All right, this land was seen as sacred to indigenous peoples, specifically the Shawnee tribe. The Shawnee tribe lived on this land for more than 2,000 years. It was a perfect place for them to survive and raise their families. There's rich soil, there's a crystal clear river, and even a cliff nearby that today is known as Indian Lookout. There's two prominent people in Shawnee history that we should talk about. Okay. Chief Cornstalk, likely born in 1720, was a prominent leader of the Shawnee Nation just prior to the American Revolutionary War, which was between 1775 and 1783. Okay. His name, Hokolusqua, translate loosely into stock of corn in English, mm. which is why, you know. Chief Cornstalk. Chief Cornstalk. Yeah. Cornstalk opposed European settlement west of the Ohio Ohio River in his youth, but he later became an advocate for peace after the Battle of Point Pleasant in 1774. Fun fact, Point Pleasant is where people see Mothman. Oh, God. Love Mothman. I know you do. <laughs> he Cornstalk died in 1777 after making his way to Fort Randolph. Randolph? Oh, not again. Oh, no. Randolph. (laughs) After making his way to Fort Randolph, an American fort built at the site of the Battle of Point Pleasant. He went there with three other Shawnees. Apparently, they wanted to talk to the Americans about their intentions. Oh, no. And although Cornstalk was a peacemaker and he only wanted the best for his people and he wanted to work with the European settlers, Uh not all Shawnee people shared this mindset. Okay. So there was tension and mistrust already, mm-hmm. which was amplified after a Shawnee killed an American militiaman who was stationed near the fort. So in retaliation, the angry soldiers executed Cornstalk and the others that were with him. Yeah, just completely even-handed, exactly. as all colonizers seem to be. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well... Um, something interesting, though, is that American political and military leaders were surprised and actually really upset by Cornstalk's murder because they believed that he was their only hope for securing Shawnee neutrality. Mm-hmm. So Patrick Henry, the first American governor of Virginia, was outraged, demanding that Cornstalk's quote-unquote vile assassins be brought to justice. The killer was brought to trial, but since his fellow soldiers refused to testify against him, Cornstalk's murderers were acquitted. Oh, good. This... Sure, that doesn't come up again later. <laughs> <laughs> okay, another important Shawnee is Tecumseh. And Tecumseh actually means shooting star or panther across the sky uh-huh. or blazing comet. And That's a fucking sick name. It's so fucking cool. Like, oh, what do you, what's your name? Dyson Wells. What's it mean? Not, not much. <laughs> to come say what's that mean well, you know. shooting star yeah damn <laughs> it's like oh you know it depends on the tribe and the dialect but pretty much yeah shooting star panther across the sky that's fucking sick or blazing comet so fucking sick so 100 percent was... of the time it blazes 60 percent of the time <laughs> oh wait no i got that backwards god damn it 60 percent i'm the time. gonna that's it. I'm on a hiatus. Officially starting now. No more no more movie quotes because it is not panned out. It's panned out 60% of the time, 100% of the time. So I'm done. Starting now. It's on record. It's on record. He's going to stop it. He's done. 
Yerdan. Yerdan. So Tecumseh was a Shawnee warrior and chief who became the primary leader of a large multi-tribal confederacy in the early 19th century. Growing up during the American Revolutionary War and the Northwest Indian War, Tecumseh was exposed to warfare and envisioned the establishment of an independent Native American nation east of the Mississippi River under British protection. Wouldn't that have been cool? Oh, if only. Yeah. (laughs) He worked to recruit additional members to his tribal confederacy from the southern United States. Tecumseh is among the most celebrated Native American leaders in history and was known as a strong and eloquent orator who promoted tribal unity. He was also ambitious, willing to take risks and make significant sacrifices to repel the settlers from Native American lands in the Northwest Territory, the Old Northwest Territory. Okay. Since his death, Tecumseh has become an iconic folk hero in American, Indigenous, and Canadian history. Yeah, it sounds like they're a fucking trailblazer. They're a comet blazer. Huh? Right, 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 right. Yeah. So- Jaguar across the sky. Panther. <laughs> Panther. Panther across the sky. That's so fucking sick. Yes. God damn it. That guy is cool as hell. So it's like, we got to talk about him because he's, like I said, this is Shawnee land. He is like obviously one of the most important Shawnee tribal members like ever. So I was like, we got to talk about these two. Mm-hmm. It's important. So if you visit the land, you can walk through the burial ground where there's an estimated 3,000 bodies. Just one or two. Okay. Archaeological digs conducted by Marshall University and Concord University have uh, uncovered over 20 bodies and hundreds of artifacts. Hmm. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Oh no, did we keep them? Oh, all right. (laughs) You're giving me a look like, what do you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a little bit about the indigenous roots of the area and you know obviously a huge part of it since there's literally a burial ground that's part of the essentially attraction yeah built over that shit history here without also mentioning white settlers you know yeah the good-hearted warm folk from the east (laughs) (laughs) you're like west (laughs) i almost said west because we always talk about them as the westerners but yeah (laughs) from the west from the the old west we got the chief west over here (laughs) i like chief cornstalk better (laughs) general west washington General Weist Washington. <laughs> Is he? Well, no, because he's Washington from the Weist. I'm done. <laughs> We're not talking about Weist Washington, okay? We're talking about the Clay family. Okay. So Mitchell and Phoebe Clay were the first English settlers on Mercer County in 1775. Yo, these guys had 16 children. Jesus Christ. That's crazy. That's so Oh, that's rude. (laughs) Sorry. In 1783, three of these children were killed in Shawnee attacks. Mitchell went out hunting and left the kids to do some chores. 
That's why he had 16 kids. So they could just do chores. Yeah. When he returned, he saw his son, Bartley, and daughter, Tabitha, had been killed. And another of his sons, Ezekiel, had been abducted. Ezekiel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> abducted by the Shawnee tribe. Okay. Yep. Mitchell recruited some locals to go with him to find Ezekiel and retaliate against the Shawnees. But when they found the tribe, he saw Ezekiel burning at the stake. Oh, God. Yep. Yeah. People speculate that the motive for this attack was likely because they were the first white settlers on what is sacred ground. Right. So, yeah. And also, one. one of the things I learned when I was doing the... Um, uh, haunting on parliament hill was our concept of war is a little different mm. from uh from like some indigenous tribes whereas like you know we'll we'll take prisoners and stuff there's like a whole cultural aspect and like an honor system that's that's in place where you do not take hostages mm -hmm. so that's almost unheard of so like some tribes they they go balls to the walls like oh we're in war like i'm stopping you your bloodline everything and yeah. they get a little um like it's 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 a completely different mentality and kind of reasoning behind stuff so yeah that's why some of that stuff happens that actually makes sense because i didn't include this in my notes cuz i just didn't i couldn't find more about it mm -hmm. but um in one version of just like someone talking about this part of history here where Ezekiel was abducted they had said that um, the Shawnee tribe leader at the time had given Mitchell, so Mitchell Clay, Ezekiel's father, mm -hmm. a horse so that he could carry the burnt body back to his house for a proper burial. Yeah. Yeah. So, see what I mean? Like yes. there, you would you would think that like to us, we would initially be like, what do you mean you did this? But then you like were honorable about it at the end. What happened? There? And it's just a completely different world. Yeah. So actually, yeah. I guess... Yeah, maybe I should have put that in the notes just because, like, just to me, I only heard it and it was only said in one, like, YouTube video I watched by mm -hmm. one person. And I didn't uh, really realize that part of it, like how, yeah, obviously it's, the customs of what battle means is totally different. It's seldom talked about. It, the only reason I knew about it was because the one time we were covering a certain battle, mm -hmm. uh, I, you know how, like, we, you know, how, like, there's, like, the, like infamous like historical moments they always call it like the such and such massacre like the boston tea party massacres, yeah they call that it kind of stuff this the clay children massacre but i didn't say i knew it massacre <laughs> because i was like oh it's so like if you hear massacre it's like oh, it's like brutal yeah well like um they they were talking they, they were talking about like one where it was like hostages or not hostages the people from a certain part in ottawa were supposed to be let free during a battle or whatever and compensation wasn't given to the indigenous community that was fighting in it and all this kind of stuff and there, there was a quote-unquote massacre and like yes it, it was a massacre mm -hmm. like 100 percent, like people unarmed died um but yeah. like the rationale is seldom talked about almost never mm -hmm. right because they they all just go like this happened and you're like whoa gross and you're like Okay, but, like, you also have to explain why. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But yeah, it yeah. almost never happens. Exactly, because there's, like, going to be a lead-up, like, rationale or mentality, and then same with the follow-up. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's important to kind of paint that whole picture. Yep. Thank you for bringing us that fact. 
Oh, you're welcome. This is a very educational podcast. <laughs> when he's yeah. not trying to quote movies. Well. Well. Bartley. <laughs> Bartley and Tabitha were buried together on the Lake Shawnee property. Mitchell Clay first marked the grave in 1783. And then on August 14th, 1937, a headstone marker was erected by da- the Daughters of the American Revolution to permanently mark the location of the graves. And the headstone says, In memory of Bartley and Tabitha Clay, massacred by Shawnee Indians, August 17th, 1783, children of Mitchell and Phoebe Clay. So there you go, massacred. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I um, after looking this up, I was like, wow, how do I not even know what this is? But I had to Google what the hell the Daughters of the American Revolution was. Because I never heard of it. Yeah, I... I've heard of it, but I have no idea what the fuck they do. It's an organization where women become members to honor their heritage and make a difference in their communities and across the country and the world. It's so kind of like Knights of Columbus, but not a guy's club. Yes, only women. Mm-hmm. And according to the website, more than a million women have joined since it was founded in 1890. Oh, wow. That's a lot of people. And it's 1890. Yep. I, I was like, holy hell, like, why... I'm not doing my women very good service right now. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I feel like if you joined it, you'd be like, you guys suck. (laughs) Be very preppy. Me? No. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, them. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, what? No one's ever called me preppy in my life. I I can understand why they wouldn't. (laughs) Also, I went, me? And burped. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So now let's go and move on to some history about the amusement park. Okay. An innovative and prominent businessman named Conley T. Snido. (laughs) It looks like Snido. Snidow. Snidow. Snido is fun to say. Yeah. Um, So he purchased the land and began developing an amusement park for the people of Mercer County. All right. It opened in 1926, like I said, Mm -hmm. and featured a Ferris wheel, a carousel swing set, a swimming pool, a racetrack, concession stands, a dance hall, and cabins for overnight stays. Oh, shit. It's a goddamn hootenanny over there. It's a fucking hootenanny hoedown shindig. It's the fucking heyday of, like, circuses and amusement parks, too. I know. And it was so... Gave us Dumbo. I got nothing else because I promised I wouldn't. (laughs) So the park was very popular among locals in the county, in the county, in Mercer County, especially for coal miners working and residing in the area because on the weekend they'd bring their whole family over and they'd have a hoot nanny. Oh, I thought they just had a thing for cotton candy. Oh. <laughs> Do you like cotton candy? In my ice cream. Yeah, that was really good, but I mean like eating cotton candy. It's okay. I agree. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. It's overhyped. My understanding is, because you know how it's like, oh, like it has um, all these things, including a swimming pool. Mm-hmm. So my understanding was based on what pictures I've seen and just set up of this place. It's not like a swimming pool like you're thinking. Like you go off a diving board into a man-made pool. Right. It's like actually a man-made lake. Oh. So it was apparently dredged using a horse and plow with a board on the front to start shaping the lake. Because this was in the... 20s and then while the weather and the passage of time has sort of like changed the shape a little bit and the quality of the lake the core outline is still present and it's still filled with water today so that lake that was essentially a swimming hole is still there 
Wow. Maybe they had um, horse diving. Can horses swim? Hell yeah, they can, because apparently back then it was a big spectacle where you Are you would... being serious? I'm dead serious. I'm actually serious. And there's also a movie called One Woman and like Four Brave Horses or something. Are you sure? But it, yes. It, yes. And they literally take horses up this ramp that ends up being a high dive. And then that person and the horse dive into the pool. What? Yeah. And the, when I said, uh, one woman, one blind woman or something like that and four brave horses, the woman dove one day and the way she hit the water blinded her, but she continued to do this. But this was an actual event. Is it a girl and five brave horses? Yes. Just told you you're wrong. Well, <laughs> you're very close for yeah. especially for you. That's <laughs> fucking wild, though. Thank you. What kind of concept is that? So is this just like this is based on real things that people did? It's not just like a book or a movie. No, it was like an actual thing. Like it was a huge spectacle. I'm not a horse person. Well, I don't think they might have been either. Yeah, what? <laughs> just what launching the hell them is off even high dive. Yeah. That's fucking crazy. It's insane, yeah. Oh my god, I'm gonna have to look up old videos or photos or something. Yeah, I had to bring that up. I had to let you know that was a real fucking thing. People were bored back then. <laughs> They're like, it's a fucking horse in the water. They're like, nothing's on Netflix, so. <sighs> Technically brave true. girl and five horses. Let's do it. <laughs> so the park was closed in, like I said in the opening, it was closed in 1967. And this was because of a failed health inspection. Nice. So I don't have any more details on that. Back then to fail a health uh, inspection. Yeah, I it was pretty Woof. grimy. Yep. So then it, it just sat there untouched until 1985. So for almost 20 years, it just sat there. Holy shit. So when it, it sat there on it, like just unoccupied, chilling, taking up space until Gaylord White, who was a former employee of the I shouldn't have looked at you. I just pictured Gaylord Fokker. So do I. Uh, so I'm, yeah, that's so what I'm, I'm fucking picturing is oh. Gaylord out here, like Gaylord Fokker. <laughs> oh my God. What? I just had to look up. I, I knew that if I looked up Gaylord Fokker, they would only have really dumb faces of Ben Stiller. Yep. So I was like, I have to look it up. So now that's what I'm picturing. Yep. There's a dumb Ben Stiller. Oh yeah. Okay, so so Gaylord White, not Gaylord Fokker, he's a, he was a former employee of the park when it was up like up and running, obviously employee. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Stupid. So he purchased the land with plans to reopen it, which he did briefly in the summer of 1987. So two years after he purchased it, but then in 1988, like I said earlier, Marshall University and Concord University came onto the scene. Okay. And they started their archaeological digs, which is when they uncovered hundreds of Native American artifacts and numerous human remains, mm -hmm. and mostly of young children. Oh, good. So it was determined that they had been buried on the property, obviously, like, prior to the arrival of white settlers. So yeah. It's an literally ancient burial ground. Mm -hmm. And it was very sacred land, so the park was closed again. Okay. They're like, you can't, you cannot do this. Mm -hmm. Um, and how you had said earlier, did they keep the artifacts? <laughs> they did keep Ugh. a lot of them. The university kept a ton and put them like on display in like a museum and stuff. So yeah. I understand when they do that and they're like until like 
your community like has time to like put together shit to like hold it but like you gotta give it up <laughs> you should, gotta... it should at least there should be at least some sort of consultation of like do you want us to hold this yeah that too and display it do well you gee, just... who name one person who's in favor of consulting indigenous <laughs> <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> yeah since its closure as an amusement park in 1988, it's been taken over by new property owners who host paranormal tours, and around Halloween, they host the Dark Carnival. Oh, no. Which is available, um, obviously, around Halloween time, and it even has a really spooky haunted house. Hmm. Like, um, it doesn't have a haunted house on the property. It's like some old, essentially, like, shithole that they just make into a haunted house. Oh, okay. But yeah. it's still really, really spooky. Yep. Apparently, there's over 15,000 visitors on average for this dark carnival. That's a fuck ton of people. And if you visit, the owners ask that you bring an offering to pay respect to those who have passed on the property and are still ling lingering there. Like what? Anything. Some people, because they know that in the burial ground, it was a lot of children that were discovered and that had been buried there. Right. So they'll bring like cute little like toys and trinkets and stuff. And mm -hmm. they're left as like peace offerings. Okay. Some people will bring like a classic like indigenous style jewelry or whatever and lay them on the headstones mm -hmm. at the um, the children's head headstone marker, the Tabitha and Bartley. People mm -hmm. will leave like cute little bracelets and little stuffed animals oh, cool. and stuff. So, yeah, the owners encourage you to bring a peace offering. Right. Okay. And um, I don't know where it is in my notes, but I will come back to it just so I don't say it wrong. But the owners of this property are really, really cool and are totally only for respecting the ground. Right. Okay. I was going to say, like, yeah, I know. You got you to gotta skirt a real fine line. So I, I want to miscode anything. So I'll, I do get into that later. But in the meantime... Are you ready for some spooky shit? Always. Let's do some spooky shit. Okay. So like I said, there is that quote unquote pool that is like the man-made lake. Um, and in the 1960s, when it was still open as an amusement park, a mother dropped her son off and he was, you know, swimming in the pool, which, like I said, man-made lake. This thing is pretty fucking huge. Yeah. And there's like sometimes like hundreds of kids swimming in there at once and they had one lifeguard. Gross. So it's all pee. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Sorry, I used to be a lifeguard. I, I know say, how this works. You're going to have post-traumatic stress coming up. <laughs> so they had one lifeguard and they were situated in the middle of the lake on just like a giant like chair okay and they would just kind of look around and watch everybody okay two thoughts on that one that's probably dope as fuck on a cloudy day <laughs> <laughs> oh no on a not cloudy day that's a nightmare yeah you got for and we have first-hand that... experience here from an actual lifeguard did i ever tell you that one nightmare story that i went up to the cottage like me and my family went up to the cottage and we got a phone call because my brother stayed because he had work and he was a lifeguard as well mm-hmm and he, his girlfriend was also a lifeguard and she had so in georgetown passed, yeah does everyone just be lifeguards well um <laughs> so we get a phone call and uh she she had passed out the um 
new facility with a new pool was all glass walls and no AC. That's we call it the fishbowl. Silly. And so it got really hot. Yeah, like the AC was like out or something. Well, bullshit. I guess it's. But so if she. If you're passed, in the pool, you're cold. But yeah, if you're not. Yeah, so she passed out on the chair, um, and this was back before they put the rule in. They put this rule in because of her, um, but there was only one guard on deck for the entire pool, and she fell. She landed half in the pool, half uh, out, split her kidney in two, and just started hurling on the deck. And it was a patron who came up and knocked on the office door and said, your guard is just puking on the Your guard thing. is in crisis. Yeah, like, mode. I don't know what happened. I didn't see it, but she's just throwing up on deck. Was she a teenager? Uh, Yeah, a teenager or, like, under 25, probably. At, at this point, they're probably like, fucking college chick, get drunk. Yeah. Meanwhile, she's like, no, I'm in an actual, I'm in an actual heated fishbowl right now, and my kidney is split in half. Fuck you. Yeah, and I've I've seen people pass out in there. I myself have passed out in there. <laughs> you passed out in the hot tub during <laughs> a staff meeting. We, yeah, we were, in a, we were and the funniest shit was like I felt so taken care of, but like Aww. people recognized immediately that I was like <laughs> not able to see because like I got up and we were all walking away, and I got up and like I was not. I couldn't see in front of me at all. And then just, <laughs> I started doing this and I just heard them like man, like the main guard just go, you're all right. Hold on. And like, I just felt an arm on my, like a hand on my arm. And yeah, I'm going to get you out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I was like, I was like, thank God. Cause I know for a fact <clears throat> I was going to go right down. Probably two seconds away from absolutely blacking out, but I black out standing up. On the tiled floor. So, anyway. But, yeah. That's a fucking nightmare if it's a hot day. <laughs> like, no thank you. First hand, like, Dyson's going to start his podcast, and it's called I Was Once a Lifeguard. Mm -hmm. And he's going to tell you a bunch of little anecdotal stories about when he was once a lifeguard, including a time a kid took a shit while going down the slide. Yeah, the duck slide. <laughs> that was gross. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, there is this huge pool. There's only one lifeguard situated in the middle of it to watch everybody. So like I said, sometimes there could be hundreds of kids what in this. your back's turned? <laughs> you gotta have grow eyes on the back of your head then. Jesus, that's a fucking setup to fail. So this mother comes back to pick up her son, mm -hmm. and he's not there. So uh, they're like looking for him or whatever, and of course everyone's like, well, you know, like it's the 60s. They don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Eventually, he was found. Oh, no. But he was found at the bottom of the lake. He oh. had drowned. Yikes. Yeah. Probably because there's one lifeguard to look after 100 kids. Mm hmm And um, he, I think he was found like a couple days later. Oh. Uh, yeah. Oh, God. So visitors of the park today have seen his ghost at the entrance gates of the amusement park. Mm-hmm. That's spooky as shit. Spooky okay. He's probably like still like just in a silly little 60s swim trunks. Oh god, I forgot waiting about for the his outfits. mom to come and pick him up. <laughs> How pissed do you think he, he is? He's sitting there with still his arms crossed, like it's cold out here. So, like I had mentioned, there is a Ferris wheel that was in this park. And there is some lore surrounding this Ferris wheel about a girl being decapitated by a tree branch. Ew. And that's what everyone thinks. And it's a, it's Lord that was perpetuated for a long time. Like, that's heinous. This Ferris wheel is, is haunted because a girl lost her head. But the owners right. have confirmed that that's not true. It is just lore. 
Mm-hmm. But there is still something that haunts this Ferris wheel. Uh-oh. So there is this apparition that is seen on the Ferris wheel. It's sitting inside of bucket number 10. And people have seen this apparition. And sometimes it looks like they're just sitting inside very still. And other times it looks like their arms are just sticking up. It's creepier that it's not that it's not tied to that event that you thought. It's creepier. It's so much creepier because there's no there's no story. No one knows what this apparition it's is. It's just there. It's just there and it's always just seated inside of this bucket. Huh? And people see it and it would like I said, sometimes it'll just seem like it's sitting there, not and moving. It, and if it's showing itself, like it's got intention. I have some cool um like firsthand experience from a YouTuber that I watched mm-hmm. um about this and it's like Whoa. But yeah, so it'll just be sitting there, not moving, or people will look up and they'll see a shadow and it just looks like someone's arms are up, just sticking straight up in the air. Yeah. Or like they're just hanging outside of the bucket. Well, at least it's having a blast, you know? We don't know that. Well, I'd like to think so. (laughs) And there's also a carousel swing set. So it's this huge swing set that is in like obviously a circle yeah and it's not like a back and forth swing it's one that spins in circles oh it's one one of the ones that spins you and you like slowly start rising okay yep so that's what this one is the safest of all the rides there's the ghost (laughs) of a little girl that is seen around this swing set and like around it running around and sometimes sitting on one of the swings okay so Sometimes she's, like I said, running around. Sometimes she's sitting on the swing. Sometimes she's just pushing it. Okay. And Not supposed to push those, by the way. <laughs> the incident revolving around why this little girl is still haunting the area yeah. is that she, when the park was still active and the swing was going, she was on the swing set on the ride. And as she's swinging around... There was a Coca-Cola truck, and it started backing up, but it kept backing up, and it got right in the path of the swings. Oh, my God. And she smashed into it and died. Oh. Yeah. Jesus, fuck. It's gruesome. Bet Coca-Cola wished it was a Pepsi truck. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's gruesome. Mm-hmm. That's how she died. Oh. So a few years ago, I guess there was this family that was staying at the park because you can stay there overnight and stuff if you want to. Um, so they were there with their daughter and their son. And the daughter, was she was near the swing set and she was like six or seven. Mm-hmm. And she's just running around like having a blast. Like she's almost like she's playing tag with someone or something. Okay. So her brother goes over and is like, yo, what are you doing over here? Like you're having a riot. I want to be a part of this. Yeah. So the little girl just like looks at her brother, leads him over to the swings, and then she just holds her hands out in front of her, um, like where one of these s- seats are of the swing set, mm-hmm. and then it just starts moving back and forth on its own. Oh. And then the the family like later went to the property owners and was like, "Yo, we had a wild experience." My kid and my yeah. daughter, like my son and my daughter, I don't know what's going on there. And they're like, oh, show us what, what seat it is. And it's the one that the little girl died on. Oh, my God. <clears throat> oh, Jesus. Creepy, right? That's got to be so freaky, even for the owners. Yeah. Just being like, uh, <laughs> ooh, ooh. I got to take this shit down. 
Well, it's their main attraction. Well, all right. All right. So Gaylord II, that's the son of Gaylord White. Yeah. It's not just a convenient name. It's not a lot of Gaylords in Mercer County, I don't think. <laughs> so Gaylord II has also seen this little girl's ghost. And he said that she was wearing a roughly pink dress and it was covered in blood. Oh. And he said, quote, she looked at me and as long as she looked at me, I couldn't move. Oh, shit. Creepy. Yeah, very creepy. So speaking of Gaylord II, his father's tractor had sat on this property totally unmoved like it was just left in place for over 40 years. Okay. So after Gaylord had purchased the land, he was cleaning it up and mowing the grass using the tractor, like, because he was trying to get it cleaned up so that he could reopen it as that amusement park. Right. So he's like out there doing his thing with his tractor, mowing the lawn. Mm -hmm. But he kept seeing a little girl from the corner of his eye. And like, it would be in completely different places. Like he would be driving and he'd see her like on his left, like way far away. Yeah. And then all of a sudden she'd be on the right, closer. And, like, just sporadically she'd be around. Oh, my God. I'd be so scared that all of a sudden she's, like, right in front of you. Well. Oh, no. He was, like, confused and pretty freaked out until, like, suddenly she's just on his shoulder. Ah! Inside the tractor Worse. With him. Much worse. And she just, like, yells at him to stop the tractor. He better have stopped it. Oh, yeah, he did. He stopped the tractor and he left it. And <laughs> he just left. Yeah, so would I. I'd be running in that field. And then later, I don't know if it was that same day or a couple days later, whatever, he eventually returns to the tractor so that he can, like, finish the job or move it or whatever because mm-hmm. he had just left it sitting there. Yeah. And he was trying to start it and it wasn't starting and he was having all these troubles with it. Then he realized it was because there was a massive fuel leak. So people speculate that this little girl was warning him to get out of the tractor because oh. it could have like it like blew up or like started so some she sort saved of... his fucking life yeah wow mm-hmm. yeah nice and so yeah that tractor sat in exactly that spot on the property for near over 40 years and it was only a few years ago that these property owners like kind of moved it closer into the amusement park just so it's like part of the attraction mm-hmm. but yeah for over 40 years it just sat there wow because it was like nothing kill yeah well she's even beyond the grave, she's like, I gotcha. Crazy, right? I gotcha, but I'm going to scare the shit out of you first. I, I know. She's like, I still have to have fun, but like, you'll thank me later. <laughs> I'm sure she could vocalize like, you're, you got a fuel leak, but no, I'm going to sit on your shoulder, motherfucker. Probably takes a lot of like energy to communicate with that like, through that world. Yeah. So she just, all she could do is lean on his shoulder and be like, stop. <laughs> and then he was like, okay. Yes, ma'am. All right. And also, I'm running. Yeah, I did. He fucking fled until a couple days later or whenever to come and finally look at it again. For onlookers, that's got to be the funniest fucking shit you've ever seen. They probably didn't see a little girl. I just just... saw this guy and he's like, the mowing is terrible. It's all over the place. The grass is short and long over here. He's looking left and right. And then then just hightailing on a fucking empty yard. Yeah. So Gaylord II, the son, he owned a school bus that he kept um, on the property because they had owned it at one point. He spent a ton of time in it. And it was like he kind of converted it into this like sort of like funky living space. So he painted the exterior black and white. 
And inside there was love seats and couches and tables. And it was just like this cool little hangout spot for him. Mm -hmm. And it's still on the property today. It's also near, it's near the tractor sort of. It's in the amusement park portion. Um, He actually died in 2014. Okay. And about six months after his death, the owners took a photo of the school bus and his face was clearly in the third window of the bus. Oh, whoa. Just looking out at them. <laughs> He's like, you taking a photo of my bus? What are you doing? <laughs> so um, a group of Boy Scouts were visiting the park. Yeah. And they were there on like some sort of fishing trip. And one of the boys wanted to go inside of the bus and take a photo, like posing in the driver's seat, like he was driving it. Yeah. And then beside him sort of behind him like over his right shoulder there's this creepy ghostly face that's being captured like right near him oh god and they were like looking back through the photo and everyone had been accounted for when this photo was taken so everyone is like that's definitely like gaylord the second in that photo hanging outside of his bus getting in the photo So another encounter happened with these same Boy Scouts. Yeah. Um, you know how I had said that the owners encourage you to bring an offering or a gift for the land and burial ground and whatever. Mm-hmm. So at someone, like be not the Boy Scouts, someone else had left a little stuffed hippo. And I guess it was in a spot that to the boys, they're just like silly little boys. They were like, oh, no, this isn't a bad spot. So they were just going to like move it somewhere else to have it in safekeeping. Okay. I don't know what their thinking was. They're just right. kids. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they were like, when we when we pass through here again, we'll put it back where it was. Because we know like the owner said that's important. Right. So not long after it was moved from where it had been sitting, the chaperone or whoever is taking care of these Boy Scouts mm-hmm. called the owners uh, or the staff. I'm not sure. But they called because the ground where the hippo was had been set on fire like it was just blazing oh fuck Mm. put it back so that is like a little cautionary tale of like especially if it's not your offering you did not put it there Mm -hmm. it's been placed there don't move it yeah don't move that shit the boys learn their lesson don't grave rob (laughs) essentially yeah So I've got some more spooky stories and encounters, but this time there's some like first-hand accounts and testimony. Ooh. You hear that? So on the website for um, like Shawnee Amusement Park, a visitor named Kim Latham wrote, I went to visit Lake Shawnee on October 26, 2020. We had a great time just flashing pictures. My husband took a picture of me in the school bus. You can see me in there, but there's a picture of a face in the right-hand corner of the photo. There's also a picture of a black figure sitting next to me. What a great experience. I will be back. (laughs) (laughs) I fucking love Kim. Yeah. I don't blame her. It'd be really fucking cool to see, but you'd also (laughs) be like, Jesus, fuck, that was behind me. And then, um, because these are like real testimonials, obviously, from people that were there. So they put them on the website and then they also have the photo that they're talking about. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. So I'll share that. 
So a second testimony comes from Teresa Quinn. She says, We visited Lake Shawnee today and took dozens of pictures, but one stood out from the rest. My 14-year-old son wanted a picture in the driver's seat of the bus. So I took several shots and so did my husband with his phone. Only one picture came up with what looks like a face over my son's shoulder. Oh, this just keeps happening. This dude loves selfies. This does not appear in any of the other photos. It's just this one. Our guide told us to take multiple shots of the same thing in hopes of catching something, and he was right. I can't help but notice the resemblance in this ghostly picture. Oh, I can't wait to see these photos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could show you. I have them. Ooh, show me. Let's see. This is the wrong folder. <laughs> Oopsie doodle. They all just look like Gary Busey. They're all just Mothman. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Busey, that's fucking funny. <laughs> Thanks. I try. <laughs> okay. Oh, the boss is coming over to inspect. Hi, son. Were you making wild no noise? You're a ghoul. Just clean in the shadows. Okay, so here is <laughs> the one of the boy in the bus that the, um, sorry, what's her name? Teresa Quinn took. And they, they made sure to put a giant red arrow so you can't miss oh, it. Oh, so you can't fucking miss it. Ew. Right. Ew. It's like, oh, it's like it's just fucking circular face and right there. Look how there. much taller it is than the boy. Oh, that's upsetting. It's creepy, right? Yeah. And she, and so she followed the guide's advice and took a bunch of photos mm -hmm. um, of the same thing, but it was only in that one. Oh, wow. It's so creepy, That would right? be very, it's very prominent. So if it just randomly showed up, <clears throat> that's upsetting. Love it. Can't wait to come back. <laughs> yeah, that was um, Kim. That was the first testimonial. Yep. Where, I don't know if I have her photo, though. Actually, maybe for hers, there wasn't one. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait. Okay, sorry. The one I showed you was the Boy Scout. Oh, okay. But this one is the sun, and it's apparently right here. Oh, in the, in the it's shadow. in the actual, like... In the reflection of the trees, it's right over his shoulder. Can we talk about the kid himself? Okay, the kid, I'm <laughs> not about to bash a 14-year-old, but he... I am. That kid looks like a ghoul. He, he looks, looks dead already. Yeah, he does look unwell. He looks like the guy with the video camera who says, Declarant is dead. <gasps> yeah, looks like he's wearing white makeup. Yeah, he looks like he's wearing white makeup. Okay, so... <laughs> okay, so point... Where's the... Yeah, okay. There's it's like in the fog of the window. Yeah, so it's a it's a fourteen year old boy sitting in the driver's seat. So over his left shoulder, so to us it's on his right side. There is a reflection that's obviously coming through the windshield, and it's like pine trees or something. Mm -hmm. Within this reflection, there is like a man's face. Yeah, it's it's a pretty clear face. Isn't that so creepy? He's doing the douchey cock the eyebrow thing that guys do though. <laughs> don't call a ghost douchey i can call a ghost douchey just because you died doesn't mean you're a saint you can see where his eyes would be where his nose is mm -hmm. outline of like a... oh it's very clear like it's not one of those ones where you squint at all it's like that's a fucking face oh, yeah yeah like that's a face the nose is right there. like you look at a face and you're like that's a face so is that crazy right yeah so those are like the two like, I would say testimonials that are posted on the website of, like, people's actual experiences. Mm -hmm. so then, in my research, I came across this YouTuber. His name is Omar Gosh. <laughs> I love it. Omar Gosh. <laughs> it's very clever. And um, he and his 
I'm not sure if it's his girlfriend or his fiance. They're definitely together. Mm-hmm. Maybe his wife, but her, her name's Tiffany. So these two, I guess, travel around to different haunted places and sort of explore them. Yep. And so they go here to the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. And I'm specifically talking about this one because there was a ton of stuff that happened and it's really cool. Mm-hmm. It was a two-part series. So there was a ton of stuff. He He's also like really... He does it well. He educates himself before he goes there. So while he is exploring, he's also like telling you the history of the place. Pointing shit out. That's yeah. And okay. he's incredibly respectful. He does not like antagonistic towards ghosts or spirits or anything. He right. respects boundaries. He's not a fucking douche when he goes there. Okay, nice. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was just overall a really great video. And on YouTube, you can donate like money like on their video you can hit thanks yeah so i just threw a little bit of money his way because i'm gonna talk about his video <laughs> yeah nice all right so talk about respectful takes <laughs> one to know one i guess oh uh, yeah i'm going i mean oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> so they start the video series there's two parts like i said and they are in like the burial ground trading post area of the park so mm-hmm. just think of I don't know, like an oval, a major portion of the oval is the actual amusement park. But before you get into that part of it, there's this like burial ground trading post area. Okay. So that's where they are before they actually enter the park park part. Right. So they're just in there recording, filming, talking, educating, doing their thing. Mm-hmm. And then they f- he, uh, he feels this presence like right behind him. And he thought that he could hear like some sort of weird moaning. And then as he's like listening, like, what the fuck was that? He said that he just got constant and instant like chills and goosebumps just like yeah, coursing through him like little. Oh, shit. And started to feel a little bit like uneasy, very anxious. And while he's talking, he's he's still like talking about the sacred ground and stuff. But he keeps like moving his head around and he's like obviously like, checking his back and stuff. He's like the uneasy. Mm-hmm. And then he's he's just filming uh, while he's leaving the offering because, like I said, again, the owners want you to bring some sort of peace offering. Yeah. So he's filming himself just leaving something on a stone in the burial ground. And then he just suddenly freaks out and spins around because he could feel something touching him. Oh, I don't like when they touch. Mm-mm. I'm and a no like, touch kind of guy. And he like... Almost could like feel like, oh, it's going to escalate because he's already like so uneasy. He's getting chills. You can feel something around him. And then all of a sudden it just starts touching him. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they were done. At, they were done in the burial ground. Yep. Trading post. They're like, I'm out. That's cool. It's great. <laughs> and even though he's like, oh, fuck, like that scared the shit out of me. Something just touched me. He's still like, okay, I'm sorry. I left you your offering. Um, we're, we're taking that note and we're, we're leaving now. Yeah. So very respectful again. So now they the rest of what i'll talk about from their video is when they go into the amusement park part of it Mm -hmm. so uh he said something really cool in the video um that maybe some of our listeners will also find interesting but apparently some of the like imagery or scenery whatever you want to call it in the video game fallout 76 right there's um two parts that were inspired by some things in the park so in the park there's this like creepy rusted out like old timey like van 
I think I know what you're talking about. Almost yeah. like a shrunken down Jeepers Creepers kind of van. Yeah, I didn't even play this game this much, but I'm pretty sure like that's one of the central parts. Yeah. So they included that in the game. And then in the park where the big man-made lake is, there is this sign that says paddle boards. Yeah. And um, on the sign in between the words paddle boards... There's this little like, picture, like this painted on icon of just four waves rolling. But to avoid copyright infringement, Fallout 76 just did three. <laughs> nice. But yeah, that base is covered. They took it from this creepy amusement park. That's really cool. So I was like, oh, I love shit. when they do that. That's a little Easter egg for you if you're a Fallout fan. Yeah, you know what? I bet most Fallout fans did not know that. Well, now you do, and you're welcome. Go back and play it and look for it. Yeah. So they are making their way inside of the amusement park uh, at the entrance sort of gates or whatever. The f- one of the first things you come across is Gaylord II's bus. Yeah. That like fucking sick chill spot. Yeah. So they're checking it out um, and hanging from the right side. Oh, I don't like hanging. I don't like hanging. <laughs> okay. Well, hanging <laughs> from the right side mirror, a side mirror, yeah. is these wind chimes. Uh-oh. And it's, like, dead silent out here. They're alone. Yeah. There's no wind. Like, Tiffany's hair is down. It's not blowing at all. It's, like, totally... But the chimes are... The chimes all of a sudden just start, like... <sighs> I don't like it. Tinkling or whatever the word oh, is. Oh, that's not good. They're just, like, making some little music all on their own out of nowhere. Uh-huh. Do so... you take that as, like, wholesome, like, enchanting? Or do you take that as, I'm fucking running? Um, if all of a sudden, in this case, it's fine yeah. because it's just very light. Like it's just a normal, like making music almost. If they aggressively started like fr- the chimes freaked out and were like smashing all over the place, getting tangled or something, I wouldn't like that. Mm-hmm. I'm very dramatic. Yes, you are. So like if I can't, if I can't figure out what the clear intention is, my default is just to be like, all right, you're doing something. Dazzle me. <laughs> like you're either going to spook the shit out of me or it's going to be very beautiful, wonderful, and touching. But either way, I'm here for it. You go, you do you. All right. You want to get the spook sh- scared out of you? Yes. Okay. So on a separate occasion, Tiffany and Omar just chilling in this like covered picnic area, mm-hmm. like a pavilion almost. Right. And then... Tiffany says that she saw something move inside the bus, which is where the pavilion is. It's like maybe a football field away in front of them is where the bus is. Okay. So they're like talking, filming, whatever. And she's like, oh, shit. I'm pretty sure I just saw something moving inside the bus. So Omar looks over with his camera and Mm -hmm. is filming it and zooming in. And no lie, there's this whole ass shadow that just moves across all of the windows inside. Oh, my God. Like. And kind of fast too, like something was like jogging or like running. It had momentum. It It had momentum. It was making pace. It had somewhere to go. Oh shit. Yeah. Where's it going? So the car, their car is parked right next to the pavilion. Yeah. So obviously, like near the the bus. So they were going to spend the night. That's why they're there. It's like the middle of the night. It's a paranormal investigation, essentially. Mm-hmm. So they park next to the pavilion because it's all like lit up and stuff. And that's where they're going to yeah. spend 
the night. So this is like towards the end of their videos. It freaked me out for a minute because as you were talking, you started scanning the room a bit. And I immediately was like, oh. <laughs> oh, it's just, it's just a shadow making its way across the room. Cool, cool. I call him Kobe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're in the bus. They're going to retire. No, they're not. They're in their car. They're going to retire for the night. And yep. then they're like, hey, good night, everybody. But then at exactly 2 a.m., they start recording again because they were disturbed by some sort of like constant tapping and knocking all around the outside of their car. Ew. So they cannot figure out exactly what it is. So they're just sitting there. They're kind of listening. They're trying to figure out like, is it coming from the area around the car? Is something actually tapping on the car? Mm -hmm. So Omar is sitting in the driver's seat and he opens the driver's side door just to kind of like listen outside. And he says, it sounds like someone is tapping on a drum. Like a very rhythmic. Uh-oh. So where are we? We're, we're on, at a burial ground. We're on ancient We're in an Shawnee indigenous burial ground, yeah. So someone's kind of tapping, like, just tapping away. All right. So he's in the car and he's talking and recording. And he's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm not really sure what that is. And then this happens. If I caught that on video. You. Oh my god. You know when you go up to a window and you go like this and it fogs up? Oh my god. It just happened right here. Oh my gosh. Yo, I just got like a cold chill. Yo, breathe back and that? draw a little heart. Right. <laughs> I hope I caught that on camera. That Isn't that crazy? Yeah, someone was right up on his window. And before he had said like, oh my god, like something just fucking blew up. I the said, window. oh my god. Um, he was saying yeah, you know, like it was about like 10 minutes ago when we woke up. So I guess it was 2 a.m. And then he's having this realization of like 2 a.m. That's when the tapping started. Because um, like most people probably know this, but 2 a.m. is the start of like dead time, which is like the most right. active um, time for paranormal activity or like the veil is thinnest or whatever you want to say. Yeah. So it was like right at 2 a.m. when they got woken up. And then he's yep. realizing that and then something blows on the window. Oh, God. Is that so creepy? That is very creepy. I'll have a link to this in the exact time, and everyone can go and watch it, too. So um, they are in the amusement park still. So mm -hmm. they're taking photos. They are taking photos of the Ferris wheel, the swings, and stuff like that. So they're at the Ferris wheel right now. Tiffany just hears this, like, repetitive sort of, like, growling sound. Oh. So she's like, yo, is Omar, is that your stomach? Like, you hungry? <laughs> you hungry? He's like, no, yep. no, it's not my stomach. And he's like, I didn't really hear it though, but like, I trust you. That's creepy. Yeah. So then they are like, let's sleep the Ferris wheel area for now. Mm -hmm. So they head over to the swing set, which is not that far away from the Ferris wheel. They're pretty close. Okay. And so earlier in the day, they did not film this part because it was still light out. So mm -hmm. they had just kind of gone around, get feel like the layout see when later they go back to film how they'll go about it mm -hmm. so when they were taking photos of the swing set the swings were just like just down in like a seated position like a normal swing so that there's like stuffed animals of offerings and stuff that are left and sitting on each swing yeah but when they returned that night to film all of the swings are like bent and sitting in this position where they're all pointed down at the ground and all of the animals, stuffed animals, have fallen because oh. they're, they're like running, pointing at the ground. They're not in a flat, horizontal position anymore. Okay. 
Isn't that creepy? That is very creepy. So they're like, okay, it's so. It's not like you just come by and like unlatch shit if there's a bunch of stuff on there. The swings it's just... are all just pointed at the ground. Oh, God. And this, this swing that had is the girl's swing that they mm-hmm. know she died in had like stuffed animals and stuff on it. And they're just like, they've fallen on the floor now mm. on the ground. So they are hanging out in this area and they're asking the girl some questions, you know, like, if you're here, like, move the swing or do you want to say hi or anything like that? Mm-hmm. And they're listening and then they can just hear these little footsteps. Oh, God. Little footsteps. Yeah. So then he's like, oh, are you like, do you want to play? Like, do you want me to play with you? So he gives, hence Tiffany the camera and he's going to start running around in circles, almost like he's playing tag with the little girl. The right. same way that that family that had been there before hurt their kid was playing with the little girl. Mm-hmm. So he is running a lap almost around this carousel swing. And then when you can see him come back into view because he's gone around, he's like, oh, I'm, I'm fucking done because he heard the growling that Tiffany did. Oh. So he didn't hear it when Tiffany first did. But as he's approaching them again, he's like, no, nah, thank you. I'm not playing with this because I don't even know if it's the little girl because I just heard growling. No, because what little girl growls? Yeah. Like, ugh. So they head um, over to the ferris wheel again they're they're like okay well, we took pictures of it but let's kind of give up on this this carousel swing for a bit let's mm-hmm. go over and see if the apparition in the bucket at the ferris wheel wants to like talk or if we can see that or whatever oh god okay so the growling's now the scariest part to me but it's so but creepy. the apparition was initially the scariest part to me because you're like, oh, it could be anything. I don't know. Maybe it's weird shadows. Because it's, it's unprompted, which just means it's there because it wants to the be. The growling? No. Oh, that, oh, that apparition. No, the apparition's just mm-hmm. there because it wants to be. Because it's not tied to an event. Not that anyone knows of, no. Yeah. Because the decapitation of the girl wasn't even a real thing. Yeah. So, yeah, this little apparition that's in the Ferris wheel, no one knows why it likes it. Oh, it hangs out in bucket number 10 and that's fucked. its bucket. That's demonic. So they're over at, they go to the um, Ferris wheel and then they're just kind of talking. This is when they're talking about to the camera and stuff and to the people like, you know, this is the Ferris wheel. This is where the apparition is seen, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. But then they can keep hearing footsteps behind them, which is where they came from, where the swing is. So there's still like footsteps running all over the place near the swings, kind of coming towards them, but Uh something's running around. So they end up returning to the swings and the Ferris wheel later that night. Mm-hmm. And they return this time because they want to try and actually communicate with the spirits or spirit that is there. Right. So they start with the apparition that's been seen in bucket 10 of the Ferris wheel. And they're using this app called Dead Wave, which is an EVP like spirit box. Okay. EVP is electro voice phenomenon. Right. So they are using this app. They're communicating and they hear the spirit say that his name is Mike. When asked why Mike is there, the box says, none of your business. Oh, okay. In a creepy little whisper, none of your business. Oh. Tiffany then sees a ton of shadows behind Omar while they're like shining their flashlights in that area. Mm-hmm. And as she sees these shadows all over behind him, she's kind of like, oh, my God. And then the box says, there they come. Ew. Oh, God, no. 
Tiffany has to give the camera to Omar because she is shaking so bad. It's so creepy. She's like, I'm not, she keeps like saying, I cannot emphasize to you enough how many shadows I just saw. Yeah. And to hear the box say, there they come. Oh my God. so creepy. It's very upsetting. So they keep moving like slowly, just kind of like making their way about the park. They're still trying to communicate a bit so they can still like they hear like something behind them and feel something behind them like it's following them mm-hmm. so then omar is like talking and whatever and then he catches a glimpse of a shadow right behind him mm-hmm. and then the evp picks up a man saying omar oh my god followed by leave oh yeah you better leave says your fucking name yeah and omar like yeah it's, it's not exactly like it's the app's not gonna guess it's that. not like mike yeah like Oh, my name's Mike. Yeah. It's like Omar, like specifically saying Omar, leave. Oh. So Omar asks it if like, oh, okay, so you want, you want me to leave? And it's like, now. <laughs> he says, okay, we're leaving. And then the go- box goes, thank you. <laughs> Omar says, do you want me to stop communicating with the spirit box and with you? Yes. Get out. What the fuck was that? Sorry about that. We had to take a brief little interlude because Kia Motors across the street was having a firework show. Yeah, it was a hell of a show, too. It was lovely. Yeah, it was right by the apartment. Shout out Kia Motors. Yeah, it was fun. They didn't have to do that. (laughs) They they do it every year, but they haven't throughout the pandemic. So that was a nice little surprise. Yeah. And it's like legit, too. Yeah, it was. They obviously like contracted a pyrotechnic or something. (laughs) It's fun. So Omar and Tiffany head over to this small playground area, which is in the amusement park, but it's like, it's like, yeah, like a playground area, like slides and shit. Mm-hmm. So beside the park, there's this ticket booth and there's something that lives inside of it. Oh. One time a woman got locked inside and another time a man who had been disrespectful or something, he yeah. got shoved out of it like really hard. Oh, okay. Well, the guy that got shoved, that sucks. But moment of silence for the woman locked in it. Yeah, I would be freaking out. Oh, my God. So attached to the ticket booth, there is a pinwheel. Uh, God bless Omar, but he kept calling it a windmill and it was driving me insane. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a pinwheel and people can communicate with whatever entity is inside of this booth using that pinwheel. Yep. So Omar asks the spirit to move it. And again, this it, there's no wind. Mm-hmm. It's just sitting there totally still. So he's like, will you move the pinwheel for us? And it just starts moving back and forth. Oh, not even one way or mm-hmm. the other? Starts going back and forth. So he asks the spirit or whatever entity it is to spin it faster. And it does this full rotation. Oh, wow. And just stops. Oh, so they put an EMF detector, which is an electromagnetic field detector. They put yep. it next to it, which it's used to, um, it's usually a good indicator if there is some sort of energy around. Mm-hmm. So they put it next to the pinwheel and it just starts spiking. Like oh, shit. There are, something is there. Yeah. So then they hear this loud thump right behind them. Mm-hmm. And in this area, there's also been a sighting of a very tall figure that moves throughout the grounds. 
A very tall figure. And when archaeologists were excavating the property in the 80s, they found the remains of a man who would have been seven feet tall. Oh my god, back then that's a giant. Yeah. And so people believe that this shadow figure is that seven foot man that's just sort of stalking the area. Well, it seems nice enough though, unless you cross him. Yeah. So they were like, they told that story after they heard the weird thump right behind them. Holy shit. So, um, in that clip I showed you of Omar in the car when the, that thing breathes on the window, yep. he leading up to that, he was talking about the owners of the property. And um, I said I'd come back to this part because we're almost done with Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. Mm-hmm. So the owners are really cool. They are not like materialistic. They don't try to sensationalize the area in any way. Mm-hmm. They make sure to educate visitors on the history and they let people know that the land is sacred. That's a really unique way of doing it, too. And like I said, what if you are going to go and visit, they recommend that you bring an offering or a gift to the spirits and the land. Mm-hmm. Um, further, a good portion of the money that they make from the visitors and tourists goes back into local charities. Nice. And although they've allowed big name shows to film on the property, mm-hmm. they have also turned others away, no matter how notorious it would be. So, for example, Ghost Adventures yeah. was not allowed to film there. Why? Because Zach Baggins can be, you know, in some people's eyes, I'm not saying it, but in some people's eyes. He can be Zach Baggins. He's antagonistic and he Uh likes to sort of berate the spirits a bit. And the owners don't want anyone yelling at the spirits on the grounds, especially because a lot of them are children. Oh, that's very kind of them. So they. And also I see where they're coming from. So they turn down ghost adventures. Yeah. So. Uh, Lake Shawnee Amusement Park has been called one of the most haunted places. So why don't you join the likes of paranormal investigators from Disney Channel's Ghost Lab, the Travel Channel's The Most Terrifying Places in America, and the National Geographic series The Watch to find out for yourself if the park is as haunted as the visitors say it is. I'm actually going to go watch that, especially I didn't know National Geographic had one. I would watch the shit out of that. They would do we that should so watch well. Them. Yeah, we can. Yeah. So that's skip like, on the Zach Baggins. <laughs> well, he wasn't even allowed there. So sorry, Zach. So that's Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. Very cool. Very cool. Very spooky. There they come. Uh, <laughs> uh. Our second and final stop in this installment of Haunted Places in West Virginia is the Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Oh, good. So this is a gothic a gothic sandstone structure in Weston, West Virginia that served as a sanctuary for the mentally ill in the mid-1800s. The history of the building holds fascinating stories of civil war raids, a gold robbery, Whoa. the curative effects of architecture, and the efforts of determined individuals to help better the lives of the mentally ill. The, cur- the curative effects of architecture? And oh. it's like, what kind of architecture? Gothic. Don't you worry. We're going to talk about all of that. Yeah? You ready to hear about the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum? Absolutely. Construction began on the asylum in 1858, was disrupted in 1861 when the Civil War broke out and the grounds were used as a camp for Union soldiers. 
Okay. The Civil War was the most tumultuous event in American history. It not only divided the country, but separated families and friendships, especially in border states like Virginia. I say just Virginia because at this time during the Civil War, it was West Virginia didn't exist yet. It was still all a part of Virginia. Just regular old Virginia. Mm-hmm. So this means the emerging Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, the town of Weston, and the surrounding area of Lewis County were greatly impacted. Mm-hmm. When hostilities broke out in April of 1861 with the bombardment of Fort Sumter in South Carolina, the Civil War had begun. Mm-hmm. At that time, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was still in the early stages of construction. The southernmost wing had been completed, and a basement and foundation for the massive central structure had been excavated and walled in. In June, Virginia's secession from the Union brought all non-war-related work to a halt. Mm -hmm. This set the scene for the most dramatic event in the history of Weston. Weston is where the asylum will be. Okay. (laughs) At 5 a.m. on the morning of June 30th, 1861, the citizens of Weston were roused from sleep by the sounds of drums, fifes, and marching soldiers entering their town. Everyone else like, you know what is a weird word? And I said piccolo. Yeah. (laughs) It's because I had to Google what a fife was. Oh. (laughs) It's a a wind instrument like a piccolo. Yeah, okay. I was like, what the hell? Stupid piccolo. So, yes, marching soldiers entering their town. It was the 7th Ohio Infantry, which had marched all night from Clarksburg, approximately 25 miles or 40 kilometers to the north. Ew. In command was Colonel Erastus Bernard Tyler, who was familiar with the area and well known to many of Western citizens. He had been a furrier before the war and had bought and sold his fur products throughout Lewis County prior to joining the army. Tyler ordered his troops to sweep through the town and seize any individual suspected of Confederate sympathies. Oh, no. One of his men, Captain List, took two armed soldiers and made a beeline to the specific location for the real purpose of the mission. What was the real purpose of the mission? Well, the location that they were beelining it for was the western branch of the Exchange Bank of Virginia which held almost $30,000 in gold deposited by the state government of Virginia to provide wages for those laboring on the new asylum. Oh. $30,000 in, oh. <laughs> in 1861. Civil War bucks. It's over a million today. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Civil War bucks. <laughs> so Tyler's mission was to seize the gold before it could be returned to Richmond, Virginia and used to support the rebellion. Awakened by the commotion, banker Robert McClandish, who lived on the second floor of the bank, appeared at the front door where it was demanded he turn over the contents of the vault. McClandish first objected, but quickly relented because, like, what is he going to do? There's fucking soldiers with guns at him. Like, give us your gold. Yeah. So he did what he was told. So List ordered the vault opened and he removed $27,000 in gold coins, leaving almost $3,000, which the books established as due to creditors. Oh. (laughs) So he left that behind. Even they took their pound of flesh. All right. The money was taken to Wheeling, where it would help fund the new state of Virginia, which in 1863 became West Virginia. Um. The partially built asylum... And surrounding grounds became Camp Tyler, a 
establishing Weston as an important military post, vital to the control of the well-traveled roads in the area. Hmm. The completed southern wing wing of the asylum provided barracks, and the main foundation served as a stable. Control of the area would change hands several times during the war. Confederate raids in 1862 and 1863 temporarily dislodged the Union troops, and in 1864, raiders not only confiscated another over $5,000 from McClandish. Holy shit. He's yeah. like, uh, I'm just trying to live in my bank. Yeah, yeah this guy can't fucking win. <clears throat> but they would also strip the asylum of all food and clothing intended for its first group of patients. Oh, don't do that. At the end of the war, the completion of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was prioritized. Consequently, while so many other towns were financially ruined by the war and would remain destitute for a decade, Weston did not experience a post-war depression. Oh. Business boomed as the asylum established itself as their primary economic resource for the town and remained so until its closure over 130 years later. Really profited off that PTSD, huh? <laughs> so yeah, isn't that wild? A little bit of war, partially built asylum, a gold heist, raids, robbery. There's just a really queak, queak. There's a real queak. There's a really queak brief rundown of the Civil War and its impacts on Weston, where, Thank the, you. where we are today. Gotta know where, gotta know where we're coming from here. Take me home to regular Virginia. (laughs) (laughs) So now we'll move more into the story of the asylum, which, you know, involves a little bit more history, but it's fine. Okay. Yeah. Well, for, for us. Um, okay. It's fun to learn about. Interesting. Interesting. Interesting to learn about. (laughs) Yeah. Early colonists arriving in North America brought all sorts of beliefs, but when it comes to quote unquote insanity... Those beliefs were apparently, and obviously, especially to us now, are very archaic. Yes. People exhibiting aberrant, beha- ab- aberrant, abhorrent, aberrant behavior were popularly considered to be possessed by demons or witches, and maybe even by the devil himself. How I always love the like, it's the devil himself. Like, how, yeah, you're you're the one. You're the special one. <laughs> It's probably just a regular old demon. (laughs) (laughs) A huge example of this is the Salem Witch Trials of 1692, where people executed people in their own town who were quote-unquote witches. Well, that serves them right for being witches. (laughs) But these people were most likely, you know, quote-unquote insane. I'm going to use a lot of, like, probably terminology that is, like, seemingly outdated, but it's just the way the research goes and how people talked at these Yeah, like, what are we going to know? There's no diagnosis back then. (laughs) It just says insane. So, a literal witch hunt. That's where the term, you know, comes from. And and witch hunting was a common practice in these days throughout the colonies. And it wasn't just isolated to the Puritans in, in New England. Like, people were witch hunting throughout all different colonies oh yeah all continents Mm -hmm. so throughout the next century in colonial america the treatment of an insane person was pretty barbaric those without family or friends that wanted to help them and take responsibility for them were mostly placed in prisons alongside criminals often changed to walls unclothed regardless of temperature and left in their own filth Some families did take responsibility for their, you know, insane loved one. Mm -hmm. But this was usually because they were, you know, they they wanted to hide 
hide or avoid their embarrassment. It wasn't right. Because, it was social status more than anything. Exactly. It wasn't because they like particularly cared about helping them. They just oh, wanted God. to hide them away. So they would literally do that. They'd stash them away in attics, secret sheds, and even holes in the ground. Oh. It wasn't until the 1770s that facilities began to be constructed specifically to house the insane. But again, these places were designed to remove the person from society, not to help them or to have them get the help they need to reassimilate through curative methods or whatever, because to people at this time, insanity was like universally regarded as incurable. Yeah, an indelible mark. Yeah, so it was easier to just shove them away somewhere and it's not your problem anymore. Right. But the 1800s brought much needed change. Through the efforts of some enlightened individuals, the desperate plight of the insane was brought to the attention of the public and lawmakers were forced to commit funds for more humane care. By mid-century, Thomas Kirkbride's theory of creating a curative environment took hold and the age of the asylum had arrived. Uh Uh-oh. Read enough books about this one. (laughs) Okay, so that last paragraph I just read sort of introduces some important people that we're going to briefly talk about. So the first one is one of these, you know, quote-unquote, enlightened individuals. And it's a social reformer named Dorothea Dix. According to one of her biographers, Dorothea Dix exemplified one of the rare cases in history where a social movement of such proportions can be attributed to the work of a single individual. Oh, holy shit, that's high praise. She was a teacher, a nurse, and a social reformer best known for her commitment to improve the treatment of the mentally ill during the 19th century. Okay. A long ass time ago. 1800s. Yeah. Uh, So just quickly, a little bit about her. She was born in Maine in 1802. She was the eldest of three children. She had an abusive alcoholic father and a quote-unquote mentally unstable mother. So she took it upon herself to raise her two infant brothers and consequently had no childhood of her own because she was busy raising them. Mm -hmm. So despite the little formal education that was provided to her, she was intellectually gifted and very driven. And she actually had opened up a private school in Worcestershire. (laughs) Worcestershire. Worcester, Massachusetts. Ah. At age 15, she opened a private school. Whoa. Where she taught young girls at the time when they weren't, like, really weren't allowed to be educated. There was no place for them. They weren't supposed to be receiving educational opportunities. She just comes up to the desk. She just puts one foot up on the chair and she's (laughs) like, welcome to the school of hard knocks. I'm going to teach you about the book of life. You're going to be, you're not going to be book smart. You're going to be street smart. Here we go. (laughs) Dorothea Dick Street Cred. So, yeah, when girls didn't have much chance for education, she opened a fucking school. That's fucking amazing. And then five years later, so she's only 20, she opened a similar school in Boston as well. Nice. So a life-altering event occurred in 1841 when she visited a local jail in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, When she was there, she saw um, mentally ill inmates that were just chained naked to the stone walls in their cells Mm -hmm. and there was no heat there was no ventilation they were just chained to the walls and left there yeah the horror of what she witnessed inspired what was to become a lifelong crusade to improve the treatment of the mentally ill so she managed to gain the attention of the massachusetts state legislation holy fuck that is a tongue twister yeah which authorized funds to improve the dreadful conditions she exposed to the public. 
Following her success in Massachusetts, she traveled extensively to other U.S. states as well as Europe and Asia, observing and exposing similar barbaric conditions and spurring worldwide improvements for the treatment of the insane. Her efforts were rewarded when the first state hospital for the mentally ill was opened in Trenton, New Jersey, and this was in 1848. Nice. This was the second asylum built following the plan of Thomas Kirkbride, with whom she worked with very closely. Sadly, the strain of everything that Dorothea dealt with and kind of burdened on her own, like physically and mentally, um, resulted in her suffering several debilitating breakdowns during her lifetime. And she was eventually admitted herself to the same Trenton hospital that represented the like fruition of her efforts. Oh, God. So she was given a private apartment there where she spent the remaining six years of her life and she died there in 1887. Well, that's sad. Crazy, though. Yeah, that's insane. Her life is amazing. Yeah, she traveled the world. She traveled the world to learn more. She had to mention Dorothea. Yeah. She's fucking epic. And I mean, she died in 1887. And she lived this full-ass life in the 1800s and was doing the damn thing. Like, she's fucking epic. She's a superhero. Yeah. So you've probably heard me mention the name Thomas Kirkbride a couple of times. I, I have, in fact, yes. So let's move on to him next. Okay. Moving on from the dicks and the gaylords over to Kirkbride. <laughs> Thomas Story Kirkbride was born to a family of Quaker farmers on July 31st, 1809 in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. His father deemed him too frail for farming, but recognizing his his intelligence and sensitivity, his father encouraged him to pursue a medical career instead. He's like, listen, boy, you're really weak. You got a strong (laughs) mind. Oh, my God. (laughs) Why did that come so naturally to you? I don't know. Oh, my God. Fucking on my dad's side, they're all Pennsylvanian Dutch. Oh, right. Yeah, I try and... Blank that out of my memory. The Amish. <laughs> so I have a little bit of Pennsylvania in my blood. You ever wash <laughs> your hands with vinegar? <laughs> Steph, are you listening? Do you remember when we went for fish and chips and we had it, to wash our hands with vinegar? It's cause... perfect that it's fish and chips. <laughs> she's sitting there like, she's these helicopters whirling around her head. She's having a total PTSD flashback. God, yeah. Why well, have fortunate sons playing in the background all of a sudden? <laughs> or, hello, darkness, my old friend. Oh, yeah. This is some good old Garfunkel. <laughs> is that what that is? I didn't even know that. Simon and Garfunkel, yeah. Sound of silence. Mm-hmm. Very beautiful. Be silent, Dyson. I will do. <laughs> so at 18, after his father told him he's got a strong mind, after completing his primary education, he began to study medicine under the tutelage of Dr. Nicholas Belvie- Belleville. Okay. <laughs> I got really tutelage. <laughs> yeah, that really hyped you up. <laughs> at 18, after completing his primary education, he began to study medicine under the tutelage of Dr. Nicholas Belleville in Trenton, New Jersey. Eventually being awarded a degree in medicine from the University of Pennsylvania in 1832. So Kirkbride desperately wanted to be a surgeon because it was at this time especially like the most prestigious title and it was really lucrative and it was a specialty in medicine that if you were anybody, you were the best if you were a surgeon. Okay. 
So, however, he was unable to gain residency at the Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia, and instead, through family connection, he was offered residency at the Quaker-run Friends Asylum for the Insane in Frankfurt, which is a small town on the outskirts of Philadelphia. Kirkbride accepted the position, and it wasn't really, like, out of any sort of interest in treating the insane. It was seen to him as, like, a springboard for his future candidacy at the Pennsylvania Hospital. Okay. So he's like, fine, I'll get my foot in the door, even though this isn't really what I want to do. Yeah. So at the Friends Asylum, Kirkbride observed and was really impressed by the quote-unquote moral treatment of the patients. Like, historically, like we've heard, the insane were considered incurable. They were treated really poorly. Mm-hmm. But at the Friends Asylum, there it seemed to be really like progressive for the time. It was establishing a family atmosphere, removing physical restraints, and providing the patients with stimulating mental and physical activities to keep them busy in a positive way. Okay. So although his experience at the Friends Asylum was rewarding, he still longed to be a surgeon. And his wish was granted when in March 1833, he was offered a residency at the Pennsylvania Hospital. So he finally got it. Yeah, it worked. So he was fucking pumped and he accepted immediately and he left Frankfurt for Philadelphia with no thoughts of ever returning to treat insane people. Right. I'm a surgeon now, bro. I'm (laughs) out of here. So Kirkbride's performance as a surgeon was really outstanding. He was good at what he did, and he also nurtured a growing private practice, which generously augmented his income. All right. (laughs) So he was given back and everything. And in both careers, he was known for his kindness and compassion in treating patients, sane or otherwise. So he was the good doctor. He was the good doctor. He treated everyone with respect, and he treated them all the same. The... This did not go unnoticed, and in 1840, the hospital governors, based mostly on his exemplary records at the Friends Asylum, offered him the position of superintendent of the newly built Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane. Okay. And he actually, yeah, and he actually did accept this. And again, it's not necessarily out of, you know, reason to like help the insane particularly it was like well if i take this it's a very prestigious and financially secure uh position for me yeah and so even though that is how he felt he would remain in this field for the rest of his life it's what he did okay work for the um hey if you're doing good i don't care why you're doing it yeah and he And he, like, took it very serious, seriously. He totally immersed himself in this, like, new environment. He was collecting and devouring everything written on the treatment and housing of the mentally ill, becoming most interested in the buildings themselves. So he noticed aspects in the design of the new facility that he considered ill-planned in regard to creating a restorative ambiance. And he began to envision a hospital environment that in itself, by its very design, would have a curative effect on its inhabitants. And this is where you tell me he wanted a <laughs> gothic-style architecture. <laughs> it was the 1800s. Everything was gothic. That's true. By the early 1850s, the growing patient population was putting a strain on Kirkbride's Hospital, which is what it had become to be known at this time. Okay, yep. Is actually the, hosp- the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane. Mm-hmm. But everyone was like, it's Kirkbride's. So giving Kirkbride's... This, uh, like, growing strain was giving Kirkbride um, an opportunity to realize his vision. 
and he convinced the hospital governors to approve funds to build a new facility based on his theories. This theory is the Kirkbride Plan. And it was born. And for the next several decades, it would influence the construction of nearly 300 mental asylums covering North America. And Kirkbride himself would come to be known as the foremost authority on hospital design. Oh, holy shit. Um, Prestigious is right. (laughs) Something else is that he was a founding member of the... The Association of Medical Superintendents of American Institutions (laughs) of the Insane. Oh, my God. Okay, that's where I draw the line on, like, okay, guys, calm down. I knew when he was promoted to superintendent that he was going to get a hard-on about it, but I didn't realize there's a whole association of them. Yeah, and guess what? He was president of this for eight years. Yeah, that makes sense. In 1854, he published... On the construction, organization, and general arrangements of hospitals for the insane, which was really like quickly recognized as the definitive work on the subject and secured his reputation as one of the leading experts in the treatment of mentally ill. Okay. Kirkbride's work had a profound effect on his personal life as well. He survived an assassination attempt by one of his patients, and then he married another one of his patients and Um, raised a family with her. Hmm. I know. I know. Hmm. Kirkbride died in Philadelphia on December 16th, 1883. All right. So that was a little history on Kirkbride Loved and it. Dorothea Dix. Hopefully you learned something cool. I liked it. So before that little music interlude, I mentioned the Kirkbride plan. Kirkbride's theory of creating a curative environment. And, you know, also how, like, this is when the age of the asylum was shepherded. So you want to hear about the Kirkbride plan? Absolutely. I missed so many opportunities for how's your head jokes. (laughs) I just realized. (laughs) Hey, we're still here. We're at the asylum. Yeah. We've got got time. Just plan (laughs) it right and it can hit real well. Yeah, yeah. All right. So for the Kirkbride plan, Kirkbride's main objective and what he felt was most essential to the realization of his vision was moving patients from overcrowded city jails and almshouses to a rural environment with grounds that were tastefully ornamented and buildings arranged on echelon, which I had to hmm. fucking Google. And it basically just means that the bu- if the building is viewed from above, the structure resembles a shallow V. Okay. All right. Whatever. Very specific. So they came this up is, with a word for that this specifically. This is vision. Yeah. This design called for long, rambling wings that provided therapeutic sunlight and air to comfortable living quarters. So that hey, the- that's still around today. Making sure that there's sunlight coming in and all that kind of stuff is still in in, in uh, use today. Well, good. This is the Kirkbride plan, man. Yeah, it's still working. Hell yeah. So yeah, well, they wanted sunlight. They wanted a lot of air. And this would help make comfortable living quarters so that the building itself promoted a curative effect. Hmm. Or as Kirkbride put it, a special apparatus for lunacy. Oh, stop it. 
These facilities were designed to be entirely self-sufficient, providing the patients with a variety of outlets for stimulating mental and physical activities, something that he had taken influence of when he worked at the Friends Asylum. Mm-hmm. Construction of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum using the Kirkbride Plan began, as we know, in 1858. And as we heard, in 1961, it was interrupted, you know, well, just civil war right 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 but it was finally completed in 1881 that's a long ass time yeah i feel so equipped for this like three days ago i watched the movie lincoln oh <laughs> <laughs> well good i hope i'm taking you there yeah well this is much better than the movie lincoln <laughs> i was so bored <laughs> you would watch that though yeah The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum is the largest hand-cut stone masonry building in North America, and it's believed to be the second largest in the entire world. Do you know? want to know what the uh, first and biggest one is? The largest one? Absolutely. It's Kremlin Hospital in Moscow, Russia. Oh. 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 Still in service today. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a hospital. It's not necessarily an asylum. Oh, okay. I mean, what do we know about Russia, though? <laughs> not much. It was designed, so the Trans-Allegheny, it was designed by the renowned architect Richard Andrews following the Kirkbride plan. So the wings of the building were arranged in a staggered formation, which is sometimes called the Batwing style. Dope. Speaking of gothic. Speaking of Gotham. (laughs) It had 12-foot-high ceilings and long hallways with tons of windows, assuring that each of the connecting structures received an abundance of therapeutic, natural sunlight and fresh circulating air. Patients also had a lot of freedom to roam the grounds and were encouraged to get outside and take up activities that would positively stimulate their minds. Yeah, this worked out in that Michael Myers movie. (laughs) (laughs) The asylum was self-sufficient. They could farm crops. There was a dairy farm, waterworks, and a cemetery. Want to hear something kind of cool and creepy? Yes. All of this, so the asylum, farmlands, whatever, all of it, cemetery, mm-hmm. took up exactly 666 acres. Oh, shit like that you got to plan out. Jesus. Wild. Yeah, that's crazy. The Kirkbride plan also included strict staffing guidelines. Mm-hmm. So there was to be a gender balance, so equal amount of men and women employed. That's surprising. And all staff is recommended to live on or near the asylum property. Oh, wow. So they even have like a stake in it. Yeah, man. They got their own little living quarters. Yeah, I really was not ready for you to be like, yeah, they were, they would strive for gender parity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wasn't ready for that one. It was like, it was a very strict guideline. They wanted that. Yeah, that makes sense. So as idyllic and serene as that sounds... The 20th century brought changes in treatment, philosophy, and deinstitutionalization, and more community-based treatment. Okay. So the theory of building as a cure was largely discredited. Oh. The expense of maintaining these facilities combined with physical deterioration 
has forced them to mostly be abandoned and many to be demolished. Mm. Obviously, not the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, because that uh-huh. bad boy is still standing today. Oh, yeah, but it's spooky as fuck. It's so spooky. Do you want to, like, start talking about some dark stuff? Yep. So the main building of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum opened in 1864, which is where the original hospital was. And it was designed to house 250 patients. Okay. In 1878, so 14 years later, there was 717 patients. Okay. All right. That's not good. So what is that? Like triple? Yep. Fucked. Yeah. In 1938, there was 1,661 patients. Oh, my God. You can't even breathe in there. A report of patients from this year, 1938, has people, like, categorized. So you're put into, like, a category of epileptic, alcoholic, drug addict, or non-educable mental defective. That's the scariest one. Horrifying. Yep. You just fit into these four columns. That's yeah, they, it. they streamlined you. It's like academic and applied, but worse. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. So, obviously, overcrowding, way too many fucking people. Creepy that you have to fit into one of these four categories. Yep. I'm going to talk about someone now who's really creepy. Okay. An infamous American doctor, Dr. Walter oh. Freeman began working at Trans-Allegheny in the 30s, and the asylum became his personal testing lab where he'd test his aggressive and experimental lobotomies on patients. Oh, no. He actually gained considerable popularity with his ice pick lobotomy methods because it avoided drilling into the skull and instead required the use of a long pick that just slid in through the patient's eye socket. Oh, the eye socket? Like, Not even the nose, right into the eyes? Yeah, like right where like it's near your nose right there. That's fucked. We'll just go in there. So a former nurse of the asylum recalled in 1939, quote, It was my second day of work when I was asked to bring a doctor a male patient. I didn't know who he was or why he needed a patient, but I found a good one who could dress himself and go to the bathroom alone. Oh, she found a capable patient. Yeah. When they say that when this patient was, you know, done with whatever Dr. Freeman was doing to him, he wasn't able to do anything and he couldn't feel anything after the surgery. Oh, that's sickening. Freeman was known to be very careless, killing one patient during a surgery when he stopped to take a photo, wasn't paying attention and ended up pushing the ice pick way too far into the brain. And that guy died. And he still continued working. Oh, yeah, he did. Something that's also just, like, of course, is, like, he would refuse to wear a mask or gloves. It's just so gross. <laughs> oh, my God. He had to mention it. So the ice pick lobotomy was considered a successful method until one high-profile failure. JFK? I knew it. Wow, I didn't know this. Okay, so yeah. in 1941, at a facility in upstate New York... He performed a lobotomy on 23-year-old Rosemary Kennedy, the older sister of JFK. Mm-hmm. It was their father's wish to cure her seizures and violent mood swings. And since around this time, the public was only hearing that, like, 
these lobotomies were like amazing. They're great things. It's a procedure that's not too invasive. <laughs> so we just scramble the brain like some eggs. <laughs> and so the dad was like, I want this for my daughter. Like, let's get Rosemary one of these. Yeah. The procedure failed miserably and it left Rosemary permanently incapacitated and rendered her unable to speak intelligibly. Yeah. And she was immediately institutionalized at a private psychiatric hospital. Oh, it's so sad. And she did live to be, I didn't write it down, but she was in her 80s. Like, she lived a long time, but that that's the the quality of life she had, was to yeah. just be institutionalized on and off and couldn't. If I'm ever at that stage, just, no. It's no. so sad. Grab the pillow. <laughs> <laughs> Freeman performed so many lobotomies, including one very busy week when he did 228 in one week. At the Trans-Allegheny. He was just doing it, day, like, just hour by hour. One after the other, let's go. Just reel them in. And over the years, he performed um, over 4,000, including 19 on children. And one boy that he did this on was only four. That's fucking ridiculous. That's fucking ridiculous. It's devastating. Yeah. Do you want to hear a little piece of karma, though? Yes. He died on the operating table. Nice. So there was complications due to some sort of surgery he was having, and he fucking died. Good. So that's what he gets. Yeah. Not only would, like, I can understand if, like, this guy was, like, doing it and was, like, convinced this was an actual remedy, like, actual solution. But he, all the evidence was right in front of you, yeah. and you were careless enough to just fucking kill people. I know. And you fucking ruined that one patient. He's probably just a sicko, like a sadist or something. Yeah, I'd imagine back then, like, that's what it would take. Because, Why like, is you're it taking always, a... Like, a creepy white doctor that gets a hold of vulnerable people. Uh, it's so scary. Because the system allowed him to? I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So, an interesting fact for my um, American Horror Story fans is that Dr. Arden in. Uh, Asylum, so the second season. Was actually Lady Gaga. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Dr. Arden was based on Dr. Walter Freeman. Mm. Asylum is a really good season. I like that one. In 1949, a reporter from the Charleston Gazette went into the asylum and saw that there was over 1,800 people in a space built for 250 people. Oh, that's so fucked up. So this reporter published a series of articles, and here's a quote from one. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> More than 1,800 men and women were jammed inside long, dreary, dor dreary dormitories, doubled up on in tiny rooms intended for one, many existing in a miserable, depreciated quarters, which could never pass inspection for domestic animals. Oh, God, that bad. The series of articles exposed more than the horrible conditions. It showed that the patients were living in their own filth. They were using broken furniture to the point that they even had to sleep on broken beds. Mm -hmm. There was no heating, even in the winter. And in some of these tiny rooms that were intended for one person, there was four or five people living in them. God, imagine the mortality rate in a place like that. It has to be insane. It's got to be so fucked up. The public realized just how bad it was inside of the asylum. And the word spread and, you know, great things changed. 
lol jk oh god damn it it just received the nickname the prison oh so we just trivialized it cool yeah. cool, like, cool oh cool. that doesn't sound like a good safe space for our like vulnerable people let's just call it the prison instead it's kind of like how we joke about rape in prison that's right yeah the number of patients in the asylum was 2600 in the 1950s that's really 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 fucked up two thousand six hundred in a space that's built for 250 holy fuck yeah more than 10 times it yeah yeah it was completely overcrowded the conditions were horrible inspections uh, started to happen in the 1950s and it was largely due to articles like this that were being written and around the nation there was improvements happening but nothing really improved here so the conditions and quality of life began to improve at other facilities uh, throughout the 60s and 70s, partly due to a little novel called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, this book started, like when it was published, it started to shed light on what happened behind closed doors inside of asylums. It was exposing the drugging and mistreatment of patients, for example. Mm-hmm. So this book was really successful and it helped bring asylums and what happened in them to like the mainstream. Nice. Sadly, the book did not have much impact on the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. (laughs) And it took until 1986 for people to do something about the awful conditions. That's a real long time. So long. I wonder how many people there were at this point. I don't want to know. This is going to be so fucked up. Probably pushing 3,000. So in 86, a new facility was announced to be open, but it took until 1994, so eight years, before all of the patients were transferred to the new facility. Okay. And probably least surprising of all at this point is that there was violent behavior and outbursts from the patients right from the start. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. I mean, there's like what they describe as violent, disturbed patients but then there's also these horrible living conditions. And then a huge problem was the staffing. There wasn't enough doctors, there wasn't enough nurses, orderlies, and they couldn't give all of these people like the attention that they needed. Yeah, and so they were agitated and exactly. uncared for. Yeah. And it was just this huge like boiling pot, just a recipe for absolute disaster. Yeah. There was a problem with patients, sadly, taking their own lives. A huge um, portion of these people had used their bed sheets to hang themselves from the exposed water pipes in their room. Oh. One story tells of a woman who received a town pass, which meant that from morning to night, she was able to go into town mm-hmm. as long as she returned for the night. So she did return, but she snuck in some lighter fluid. Oh, no. She laid in her bed. She poured the lighter fluid all over herself and lit a match. Jesus, fuck. Firemen showed up very quickly and put out the blaze. Obviously, assuming this woman was dead. Mm-hmm. She just fucking lit herself on fire. Yep. But apparently she just shot up and her eyes opened and she just looked at them and said, I didn't do a very good job, did I? Ah. 
Oh my god. Yeah. Oh. So she was taken to the burn unit and the no. Pittsburgh hospital. Yeah. But she died. Okay, okay. All right. Yeah, she died. I wanted her out. Like, I wanted her out of her misery. That's so fucked up. And a person who was already in that state, in that mindset, and I can't imagine, but I, I feel like you would be like, I can't even do this right. I can't even kill myself. Yeah. Like, it's just so devastating. Yeah. For the really, quote unquote, disturbed patients, the asylum resorted to locking them up in small cages. Small cages lined the hallways and trapped the most violent patients inside of them like ducking fucking caged wild animals. Mm. Because the asylum was severely understaffed, this was a way for the staff to take and keep control. Shove them in a cage, put them against the wall, and forget about them. Okay. Uh, something that's very important to note, though, is that just because you lock up some of them because you've deemed them violent or the worst or whatever, mm -hmm. it doesn't stop the other patients who are allowed to roam free from violent behavior and even murder. Uh-oh. There's several accounts of patients murdering each other. In one case, in the middle of the night, two patients pulled another patient from his bed. They tied him up with bed sheets, twisting one around his neck and one end by throwing it up over the water pipes. Oh, and they hung him from the ceiling. Ew. The pipe held, but the sheet didn't. So he fell to the ground. These two men were enraged, so they, so they shoved his head under a heavy metal bed frame, jumped up and down on the bed until Ew. they crushed his head. That's fucking disgusting. In the sleeping quarters, where God knows how many other people were around and saw this, and you, you're all these vulnerable people who are probably easily triggered and already unstable, they yeah. watch you crush a man's head. Yeah, just ruin them. A similar thing happened to another male patient where he was murdered in these living quarters, dragged out into the hallway, and hung with a bedsheet from the ceiling. Ew. The staff was also in danger, so it wasn't just patient-on-patient -patient violence. Mm -hmm. One night, a nurse seemingly disappeared inside the asylum. She never came out, and no one ever saw where she went. Mm -hmm. Many assumed that she must have left for the night, and no one noticed but when she did not return for her shift the next day, people were like, fuck, like she's, she's literally missing. We have to report her. Mm -hmm. So the police came to search the building to see if maybe she was hiding out somewhere or something happened. What a what a optimistic approach. Yeah. Suddenly they did not find her. Mm -hmm. And at the time, people were speculating like the police didn't even search very well because they they could see that they were didn't really want to be there in this yeah, overcrowded no, asylum. No kidding, because they probably walked in and went, Gee, holy fuck. Yeah. What is this? And they actually were noted as refusing or like too afraid to go into certain areas of the hospital, probably those areas that were overcrowded with patients. Mm -hmm. So they didn't even do a good job at looking. Yeah. So the police were like, oh, no, she's not here. We'll just pay attention, like see if anyone has any information or leads or whatever. Mm -hmm. So they just didn't get anything did not go anywhere they had no idea where she went so they just chalked up her disappearance as her like leaving in the night on mm -hmm. her own volition 
So they're like, I don't know, maybe she had enough. She had had enough with this place and she just left. Says a lot that that's what they just assumed. Mm-hmm. And also refusing to go anywhere. They're like, she was probably done with this bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. I would be. <laughs> yeah. That's not me. That's the police talking. <laughs> so, like I said, obviously the police didn't search the building thoroughly enough. Because two months later, her decomposing body was found lying at the bottom of an unused staircase. A patient had mm. murdered her and hid her in the abandoned part of the building. Oh my god. Two months. That's fucking She just lied there creepy. and rotted, essentially. Ew. Isn't it horrifying? Yeah. Oh, imagine opening the door to that stairwell. Ew. After two months. It would be rancid. Mm-hmm. Various former staff members have been interviewed over the years, and most say they, quote-unquote, got used to the insanity, but they also wished that there was counseling available for the employees. Yeah, no kidding. A former medical director was interviewed and was talking about being hired in 1992 and going in to the unit where the patients are housed. So Mm -hmm. it's his first day, he's going in, and he's quoted as saying, my first day I walked into the unit. A guy walked up to me and looked at me with his Hannibal Lecter eyes and said, I'm going to cut your heart out. I thought, why am I here? But instead, I said, yeah, just mellow out. I used to, I was used to mentally ill people, but not someone who wanted to cut my heart out. Yeah. I love that he was obviously scared. Yeah. I was like, oh, fuck, this is intense. And instead, just went, just mellow out. Yeah, just why don't we calm down here for a minute? When people are obviously going off the wall, you should definitely tell them to calm down. (laughs) (laughs) So changes in the treatment of mental illness and the physical deterioration of the facility forced its closure in 1994. Like I said, they had started to transfer people to the new facility. Mm -hmm. And this did leave a devastating effect on the local economy. Like I had said, it was open for 130 years and it was like a major source of of like supporting the community. It was a big employer hub. Exactly. Yeah. It eventually did reopen, but as a tourist destination where the asylum offers ghost and history tours until about mid-November when it closes for the winter season. Right, because it's too cold for you to walk through, let alone live in. Yeah. Yeah. No other way about it. That's exactly right. So, since it's now open as a spooky little asylum for history and ghost tours, mm-hmm. it brings us to some more spooky shit. Oh, shit, yeah. You ready for spooky shit? Oh, yeah. Many people visiting the asylum for the first time are greeted by a white haze that floats out to them from dark corners. Whoa. And the asylum resident ghost is a little girl known as Little Lily, who has haunted the asylum since the turn of the 20th century. Mm. Little Lily haunts the fourth floor in Ward R, 
Today, it's not the original room because that room was ruined in a fire in the 30s, but that room was rebuilt and her energy and ghosts still remain in that restructured space. So there's two origin stories for Lily. One legend goes that she was a former patient who spent her short life inside the walls of the asylum. Mm -hmm. And the second legend says that she was born to a female patient and Lily was kept safe by hospital staff until she sadly died at nine years old of pneumonia. Aww. She's only a little baby. However, she got into the building. There is no denying that she is still around today because she loves to communicate with paranormal investigators and ghost hunters <laughs> who like go in there to explore the building. They're like, oh yeah, you're guaranteed to get something from little Lily. Yeah. She's annoying as shit, that one. (laughs) (laughs) People visiting the asylum will leave her toys in the room um, in Ward R, where she's known to be. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, if you go in there, it has like a sign and it's called Lily's Room. And Mm. it is just covered with toys. There are so many toys in there. Wow. So visitors have seen the toys moving around. And uh, one time, well, multiple times, actually, there's the small ball and you'll be like getting your tour or walking around or whatever and then it'll just like roll right at you yeah so people will roll it back in the direction it came from yep and then it'll roll right back to you and if you roll it back you get being right in the face <laughs> <laughs> so these people are sure that it's little lily playing with them that makes sense why else does it keep rolling back <laughs> that's little lily she's precious i love her she's great I love how she has her own room, Lily's room, and it's just full of toys. Yep. It's very sweet. And she wants to talk to all the investigators. Yeah. She's like, y'all, Borden here. Let's go. Yeah. You want to play? I got a ball. It's sick. You want to play? What's that tool? What's that tool? What's this do? What's this do? That's all I'm imagining. (laughs) To the point where the investigators are like, all right, I'm bored of this. This is annoying. Oh, my God. Fuck Lily's room. Let's go to the kitchen where there's this really scary ghost. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Where the knives are. (laughs) That was me trying to do a segue. I know. I got it. Is it good? (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty good. So uh, this other ghost, Mm -hmm. people are like, Lily is too wholesome. I want something creepy. The other ghost that's frequently seen and felt in the asylum is in in and around the kitchen. Workers and visitors feel like they're being watched by eerie eyes. Especially at night when the security guards are on duty Walking around alone through the building. Mm-hmm. One specific security guard was doing his rounds and he neared the kitchen and he felt it. That unmistakable feeling that someone was watching him. He felt anxiety and dread, a common feeling when negative energy is around you. Then there was movement behind him in the wide open doorway leading into the kitchen. He looked over and he saw a grayish figure standing totally still in the middle of the doorway. He said he knew it was a woman, and even though he couldn't see her eyes, and he wasn't even sure if she had any eyes, he knew she was staring right at him. Ew. And then it faded away. Oh. People have seen the same sort of grayish figure, something moving around in the kitchen. 
they will experience that feeling of like anxiety and dread and you could have been perfectly fine and then all of a sudden you start going to the kitchen and you just you want to like crawl out of your skin because something is like staring so intently at you that you just want to flee oh my god like something's just dead wrong Mm -hmm. and it's not like a good it's totally opposite of little lily people probably flee from this kitchen to go to little lily like oh my god you're so much nicer (laughs) i don't like this and like the fact that no one's really sure if it's a woman or if it's a man because it's just this ominous Ominous gray figure in the doorway but like you have this such like visceral like feeling and reaction to it that you like the security guard was like no i like physically looking no i could it wasn't a woman and no i couldn't see if they had eyes but like i know it was a woman and i know their eyes were staring at me and i don't go in there ever (laughs) he probably was like y'all i'm not taking the kitchen duty anymore i'll patrol like outside i'm not going in there Mm mm-hmm The asylum has had countless reports of apparition sightings, unexplained voices, and mysterious sounds, all made by the guests and the staff that have worked there and visited there. Here they come. There they come. There they come. Sci-Fi's Ghost Hunters, Ghost Hunters Academy, The Travel Channel's Ghost Adventures, and Paranormal Challenge have all visited the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Is one of those Zach Bagans? Ghost Adventures is, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, he's allowed to go in there and breathe. Better been nice Lily. to fucking Lily, I swear to God. I hope she wailed him in the head with that ball if he was rude. Yeah. Just bean. Right <laughs> off the fucking head. There's a spirit in here of a little girl. Kind of sounds like that. Yeah. <laughs> he tries to be dramatic. I know. Today, the Trans Allegheny offers daytime historic tours, including museum rooms, nighttime paranormal tours overnight ghost hunts, photo tours, flashlight tours, and a haunted house. Mm. Thousands have been committed to the asylum over the years, and hundreds unfortunately died inside its walls. Decide for yourself if they're still occupying the historic wards and treatment rooms. I want to go. Me too. Yeah. Let's see how far away it is from here, okay? I'm going to do a flashlight tour. That sounds fun. I think, yeah, that would be. Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Is that like David Lynch? That sounded like David Lynch, yeah. That was an accident. (laughs) Sure. Your location. It's six and a half hours away. Oh, that's not too bad. No. day, Day drive away. It's not crazy to go over there. But it'd be like going to the cottage. Yeah. Actually, going to the cottage is probably longer. Yep, it is. <laughs> it's eight hours. It's like straight shot south, too, except we have to go around the lake. Oh, yeah. Cool, right? Mm-hmm. Where do you think um, how far Lake Shawnee is? Uh... What was it? A day march away from Ohio? I'm going to say five hours. Ohio is a lot closer to West Virginia than we are. Oh, yeah. I thought Ohio was up north. It is, but so is West Virginia. Oh, Oh, yeah. It's longer. It's a nine hour, almost a nine hour drive. Oh. 
Well, let's not go there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know exactly where it is in Ohio that they marched from, but like. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it comes all the way down here. God, imagine just marching for a full day to get there. To rob some gold? Yeah, I would. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, can we take an Uber or something? We'll just tip them when we get there. Yeah, that was the second of two stops on our trip through West Virginia to some of the most haunted places. I loved it. I'm glad you did. And I had plans on doing more, but, you know, my research took me down crazy rabbit holes. Yeah. So I just stuck to the two that I had done the most research 14, on. 14 fucking pages of it. Yeah, 14 pages. Mm -hmm. But don't worry. I have already notes written for the other places I wanted to talk about. So there will be a second installment of West Virginia. Oh, dope. So, yeah. Stay tuned for one day when I do that. I don't know when, but it'll happen. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, thank you for turning, tuning in. And in the meantime, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Haunted Places in West Virginia. Make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening. Rate the show five stars and leave us a positive review. Thank you. Thanks. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter. And make sure you visit our website darkadaptationpodcast.ca where you can buy a patch. Hell yeah, you can. Support a little indie baby podcast. No tax. Free shipping. No, I was going to say no shipping. But no, no, we won't even send it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will. We will send it promptly. We will send it. It'll be all bundled up. I'll, I'll even send you a personal little thank you note. Uh, you'll have my autograph, which maybe one day will be worth money, so you better hold on to it. <laughs> it's hard for me to even say that. <laughs> Tune in next week when Steph joins us to talk about the Johnstown Flood, a.k.a. the Great Flood of 1889. Mm. Episode's gonna make a splash, baby. We'll catch you on the dark side. Bye. That was me. Oh, Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> I thought maybe we ordered pizza and I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs>